0: You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community.
1: Esther Rakusin, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. We are nearing the end of Women's History Month, and in today's show, we feature a new museum exhibit on display now at the Museum of the Earth at the Paleontological Research Institution, or PRI, in Ithaca. The exhibit, titled Daring to Dig Women in American Paleontology, explores the achievements, adventures, and discoveries made by women in American paleontology over the past few centuries. In today's show, you'll hear an interview of Kate Rowell, the organizer of the new exhibit. Later on in the show, you'll hear about an exciting opportunity for local citizen scientists to get out into nature and document their favorite organisms. This project is called the City Nature Challenge and it also happens to be organized by the PRI. You'll hear an interview of Dr. Alexandra Moore, Senior Education Associate at PRI, speak about the City Nature Challenge and how you can get involved in collecting data for the project. First off, here is locally sourced science contributor, Dr. Anna Lavina, with her interview of Kate Rowell, exhibit developer of Daring to Dig, Women and American Paleontology.
2: My name is Anna Levina and today I have the pleasure of talking to Kate Rowell, who is an oral history archivist and was involved in working on the local exhibit of Women and Paleo at the Museum of the Earth. Welcome, Kate. Uh, Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background?
3: I am an oral history archivist based in Madison, Wisconsin right now, but I also do consultant work for museums, putting up exhibitions. I consult on uh, developing content and exhibit writing, and so I actually used to work at the Museum of the Earth, and um, they asked me back to help work on this new exhibition that's opening on the 27th of March, which is very exciting, on women in American paleontology.
2: What can you tell us a little bit about women in history? Certainly,
3: I do have a background in history. I, When I was a young person, I first became interested in the history of marginalized peoples, including women, and also including people of color. And that's certainly a prominent theme in the exhibit. There is, as I think you might expect, uh, a lot of erasure in history, um, in history of science and women were, were precluded from participation in science at different, in different ways at different times. So uh, in the exhibition, for example, um, speaking about paleontology, we kind of begin the story with um, some of the earliest um, women on record who in, you know especially I guess in Europe who uh, were illustrators, right? Uh, and so this was earlier than you may even think. This was in the, the 1700s, the 1600s even. Um, and so they were making scientific illustrations for the works of family members, um, usually, and they are really detailed, technically, um, technically rigorous drawings of specimens, right? And that was essentially the only way that scientists had to view specimens from far away. And there was there were no photographs, nothing like that. So these, uh, this content was actually really important for advancing science, and some of these women were recognized by the people they worked with and were publicly acknowledged, and some were not. Uh, and that's reflected in the exhibit. Um, and then so as kind of we move forward. speaking, again, specifically about paleontology, um, you have women who are slowly kind of making their way into um, larger scientific circles. Uh, we have, of course, Mary Anning, who, even though she's a favorite now, wasn't really uh, acknowledged popularly until kind of, I would say, late 20th century, early 21st, right, Um, and she was kind of an exception in that she was a working-class woman, and a lot of the people that we learn about uh, in the history of science tend to be wealthier, middle-class or wealthier people, and also white people, of course, right, because working class people were precluded from the practice of science often because there was not a lot of opportunity for networking or professional development like we do today. Uh, it was about who you socially knew and it was something that was available only to people who could afford the training, right? And so, and those things of course, were denied to women often, especially working class women and all, very much people of color because the period in which Mary Annie was working was period in which slavery was ranked. So you have um, huge barriers there. Um, And then as we move forward again, women coming into the professional sphere a little bit, coming in through universities, some universities were allowing gender separated classes, right? Of course, only for white people. Um, And slowly that began to change, but all of this was coming from women who were being deeply persistent and, and really had an intense, Devotion to their science, and who were working with each other to uh, find positions at women's colleges, which was common um, because they wouldn't—they weren't able to get positions at larger universities that mainly that mainly served men. They were essentially doing the work and laying the groundwork for the women who then came after. And um, there's a whole there's a whole portion of the exhibit that discusses. Uh, the 20th century and how things changed in from you know the early period in which women are still really kind of sidelined a little bit but certain uh women like uh maori and others were really making a name for themselves they were publishing they were managing to find mentors that were willing to work with them including gilbert harris who founded pri and which later also founded the museum of the earth then into the 80s and the particular boundaries women, women experienced in the 80s uh, in terms of motherhood and family and work-life balance and institutions not being willing to acknowledge those, those barriers that they were placing for these women. And then we also spotlight women today, right, and so there are con- there's constant work trying to make the field hospitable for everyone, people of, you know, various gender identities, people of all backgrounds, people of color, and finding ways to ensure that paleontology is a science that is welcome to everyone and is available to everyone, because the science is richer when everyone has an opportunity to contribute.
2: What are some of the things that paleontology could make to attract more uh, more women in science or more people of color?
3: Well, I would say that one thing specifically that the exhibit um, is trying to do is trying to make the kind of topic of paleontology new in the eyes of young women and families of, you know, that have daughters who might be interested in this kind of topic and, but may feel that they still, you know, understandably have this image uh, in their minds of the, you know, intrepid male paleontologist with the khaki utility shirt. Whereas we have all these images and, you know, we've done interviews and have profiles of these incredible women in the field with their children sometimes but often you know on their own or in groups and doing incredible work in the arctic in you know south america in asia um all these places doing their incredible work as they will and in some ways holding to some ideas we have about you know people out in the field doing this you know labor but also people in the lab people building databases people um working collections too so um, kind of trying to reform the idea of of how we think about paleontologists and how we envision them, um, and so social efforts, kind of like that, of outreach. I think um, exhibitions as one, but also having a just having a presence. I think can't be overstated the importance of that. Um, having hiring women <laughs> and initiatives to truly enact that right, hiring women, hiring you know people of color. Um, Having that presence in your faculty builds confidence in your institution. And when, you know, young women are looking around to apply, right, and they see someone who looks like them and who has made their career, you know, they then have a sense of confidence that they can do that as well.
1: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Anna Lavina is speaking with Kate Rowell, a museum exhibition consultant and an organizer of a new exhibit on display now at the Museum of the Earth in Ithaca. The exhibit is called Daring to Dig, Women in American Paleontology.
2: So we mentioned women illustrators. Is there like a famous illustration that you're f- familiar with? Well,
3: something that I, I actually learned while working on this exhibit was, um, there's a um, kind of seminal book, um, published by Martin Lister, who was kind of the founder of conchology the study of, you know, um, kind of mollusks and, and that kind of group and, um, that he published, you know, the most Uh, at the time in the, you know, 16, the late 1600s, mid mid, late 1600s, the most uh, comprehensive book um, of specimens, and that that was a really very big deal. um, And that made them available to the scientific community to be viewed, compared, contrasted, and discussed uh, in a way that wasn't available before. Um, And it has, hundreds and hundreds of these drawings, all done by his two daughters, uh, Susanna and Anna Lister. And uh, they were teenagers when they started working on it. And these are such technical, you know, truly skilled drawings, right? Um, people develop entire careers building that skill. And um, to kind of understand that these are young, young women who are developing their own skill set and later also did contribute in other ways. They contributed to other publications, but unfortunately, because of the way the historic record tends to um, show a preference, a uh, social preference for um, men, uh, white, prominent, wealthy men, um, there's a lot of uh, a lot known about their father, of course, right? Martin Lister, but not really them after they worked on the book. Once they were done with that that particular project, as large as it was, they essentially kind of ceased to, to matter <laughs> in a way. Um, and you can kind of see that through all the, all the paintings that are available of Martin, just the, the visual depictions of, of Martin Lister and none of, of his daughters, his wife.
2: I've always marveled just with how detailed some of those illustrations can be and how much we know about either the fossils or, the, or how the plants looked back then, uh, all the illustrations.
3: Right, it's really, they're really truly beautiful. Um, and it's wonderful to see this, merge of, uh, this merging of hip, you know, art and science uh, in, in a way that was really uh, transformative for the field
2: too. So if some of our listeners wanted uh, or hopefully will attend the exhibit, is there something specifically that you hope that they would pay attention to?
3: I think that I really love our profiles of historic women. I think they're very rich in detail that um, really kind of bring them alive and help you uh, get closer to the fact that these are people, right? Just like myself. That's kind of a barrier in writing about history uh, and writing about the history of science too, is that um, people seem like um, kind of fabled figures and it's hard to, you know, bring ourselves into a mindset where you feel like you could be standing opposite that person and they would be standing there, corporeal, real, right, um, and an interesting and layered human just like the rest of us. But I also really, really like the profiles that we we did of modern women. So we interviewed a number of practicing paleontologists and they were kind enough to um, do interviews and to um, share with us the directories of their careers and we we now are, I'm, I think, very excited to share that with the public and to see the diversity there in terms of the women themselves but also their work, um, all the different ways in which you can get into paleontology, right, (laughs) and also all sorts of, you know, fields of science. People's uh, career paths are rarely straight, narrow, Mm -hmm. smooth, and I think that that's represented well uh, there. Um, I think that for me, and I think maybe for a lot of other, you know, young people, I think that's encouraging to see, right? Because um, especially in fields that require a lot of training or a lot of money to, to acquire that training, things like that, um, or you know, your, your future depends on a grant, something like that, it can be, it can feel a bit intimidating when you're trying to um, build that career. But um, it shows that uh, there's all these people doing all these varied things and they got there in lots of different ways. And I like that a lot.
2: That's awesome. Uh, And for anyone listening my career path is extremely not straight and narrow. I was a Marine biologist, a bachelor degree, master's in oncology and I'm a PhD in plant breeding and I'm working on active learning. So I definitely agree with you that people's careers change. And especially if you are curious and have passions. I can't
3: emphasize enough how true that is of, uh, of, um, the museum world as well. <laughs> People come from all different backgrounds with all different kinds of training. I myself have a master's in museum studies for history and science museums. People have all sorts of backgrounds
2: uh, Well, thank you Kate for talking with us If there's one uh, one more thing you want to let our listeners know where they can find more information about you I don't know if you have a social media. Profile. Um, I
3: don't have a professional social media profile at this time I do have LinkedIn <laughs> um, but um, I think that you should certainly take a look at the Museum of the Earth's Instagram, um, their Twitter account. They have a lively following, but yeah, there's uh, great content there on their social media, and of course, again, the exhibit is opening on the 27th of March. It's um, There's also plenty other things to see in the museum. They've done a wonderful job of making it um, really safe for people to go and attend. I know some people may balk at the idea of attending a museum, but they've done a great job of
2: that, and um, I really hope that people will go see the exhibition. Thank you very much for tuning in and learning more about women in science and paleontology. If you'd like to learn more about what you've just heard, check out the new exhibit at the Museum of the Earth, which is currently open. Also, check out the Bearded Lady Project, which is a documentary film. About women in paleo and uh, celebrating the work of female paleontologists and highlighting the challenges and obstacles they face. Additionally, a blog called Travel Blazers celebrates women archaeologists, paleontologists, and geologists, and have been doing who have been doing awesome work for far longer and far greater numbers than most people realize.
1: You just heard Anna Levina's interview about the exhibit. Daring to Dig, Women in American Paleontology, now on display at the Museum of the Earth. To learn more about the exhibit, visit museumoftheearth.org exhibits. You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. If you have any local science news, we would love to hear about it. Send us a tweet at FLX Science Radio. Would you like to do interviews about science and contribute to our show? send an email to LocallySourcedScience at gmail.com. Check out our podcast at LocallySourcedScience.org. At that site, you can subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. I'm speaking with Dr. Alexandra Moore, Senior Education Associate at the Paleontological Research Institution, or PRI. She is here to talk about the City Nature Challenge, a global biodiversity event taking place from April 30th to May 3rd of this year. It is sponsored by the California Academy of Sciences and the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles. This BioBlitz event will be taking place in 450 cities on six continents and Ithaca is one of the cities. Dr. Moore is the organizer of the Ithaca BioBlitz that would be based at PRI. So Alex, thank you for talking with me about the City Nature Challenge. Can you start off by talking about what is the City Nature Challenge and how how long has it been taking place?
0: The City Nature Challenge is, as you just described, a global BioBlitz event. And it's taking place separately in more than 400 cities around the world on the weekend of April 30th through May, third. Um, It's meant to try to catalog as much of the world's biodiversity as possible by by taking an all-hands-on-deck approach, by getting as many eyes and ears and observers out into the world as possible. And so this is probably one of the largest community science events ever. This is the sixth year that there have been city nature challenges. They were um, begun by the the cities of of Los Angeles and San Francisco. And there was sort of a friendly competition between those two cities to see who could um, catalog the most biodiversity. And from that first event in 2016, the City Nature Challenge has expanded year after year. I believe last year there were about 250 cities. So it's almost doubled just um, between last year and this. And the name city nature challenge is a little bit of a misnomer because we look at biodiversity both in the cities and then beyond um, the city boundaries although it was initially focused on urban biodiversity, we're now looking at um, organisms that, that live pretty much anywhere in our region. And in fact, the Ithaca event takes place um, across the, the watersheds of the five easternmost Finger Lakes. So from Seneca Lake over to Otisco and every place in between. Um, we've been using that area all year actually over a series of what we've called socially distanced bioblitzes. We've had one in each season at PRI, and so this is kind of the capstone event. So we're really hoping to recruit as many people as possible.
1: You mentioned the word biodiversity. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means and what organisms you're asking people to look for?
0: We're looking for everything. So animals, plants, fungi uh, among the animals, insects, birds, uh, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, Um, But we're looking at wild organisms. So we know that the uh, human communities have impacted the ecosystems around here profoundly, and not only by our own presence, but also by the plants and animals that we bring with us. And so we are trying to catalog the natural biodiversity, the natural abundance and distribution of different kinds of organisms that that are living here with us, that we're sharing these ecosystems with. And that's really important because um we depend on these natural organisms uh, think agriculture and dependence on pollinators for example and so we want to really get a sense for how the natural communities that surround us and support us whether they're thriving, whether they're in trouble, um, whether we're seeing changes over time as a function of climate change which you can't see on a single weekend but this will be data that we will be gathering over time to try to determine what's the impact impact of having humans in these watersheds of the Finger Lakes and whether we're taking care of our, our supporting ecosystems or not.
1: We just mentioned that this is the first year that Ithaca will be participating, and you talked a little bit about how you're getting prepared and that you've done some bio blitzes over the last few seasons. What else are you doing to get prepared? Are you doing any recruitment efforts?
0: Um, We are indeed. We are trying to work with as many of our community partners as possible. Um, I've spent uh, most of the month of March reaching out to folks. And um, if I haven't hit you yet, I'm coming for you. But um, Ithaca High School is having classes work with us, DeWitt Middle School, the Ithaca Children's Garden, the Science Center, um, a number of organizations have already stepped up to um, participate and organize their own groups and their own events. But it's really wide open. You don't need to be part of a group. You can just go out there by yourself. The mechanism or the the technology that we're gonna be using to collect all these observations is a internet-based platform called iNaturalist. And it'll work on your computer and it'll work on your smartphone. And all you need to do is get out there with your smartphone or with a camera and observe, take pictures and upload them to the iNaturalist platform. Um, You need to make an account and as long as you do that within the geographic area that we've specified and during the time frame of the City Nature Challenge, any observation that you make will automatically go into our project and be and be counted as part
1: of the City Nature Challenge. How is the data going to be used?
0: Um, globally, I'm not sure how it's used, but it is it is collected and available. And I know that scientists do use data from iNaturalist. At PRI, we've been gathering data on the biodiversity of this area, I think, since the 1980s, actually. Um, We have some some older collections of observations that were made, particularly over at the Cayuga Nature Center. In 2017, we actually sponsored a pretty intensive BioBlitz at the Cayuga Nature Center, where we observed more than 600 organisms, macro organisms, over um, 24 hours. This is a bigger event. It's a longer duration. It's four days. And so we're hopeful to get a much more complete picture of the diversity of, of these ecosystems. And particularly because this event is in the spring, um, we think that we'll be able to see all kinds of things. So we're, we're keeping track in the various geographic spaces that, that we um, maintain at, at PRI. And then we're also making that data available to anybody anywhere in the world that wants to take a look at it. And it's really pretty interesting because when you look at the iNaturalist platform and you look at some of the observations that people have made, there are some really stunning things um, that that non-scientists have been able to observe and document, particularly the expansion of invasive species or um, little pockets of, of endangered species. And it just takes so many eyes out there in the world, on the ground, in the sky, looking at things and recording them. And this is the kind of data that can't be collected by professional scientists because we're not very numerous. So it really, really helps to have everybody out there making these observations.
1: Okay. So what you're saying is that if you're not an expert or even an occasional observer of nature, you can still go out there with your iPhone and participate.
0: I can't think of a better day to get started than on the City Nature Challenge. It's really important, I think, for everybody to go outside and look around. And it's especially important for people who live in cities because you tend to sort of um, if you if you live downtown, you're kind of isolated from the natural communities. And maybe you don't think about it all the time. Um, I live sort of out in the country, so uh, nature intrudes on my life. Every day, but um, but particularly for people who are urban residents, there's so much to see, even right downtown, even in the little median strip between your house and the street, but particularly if you go to some of our urban green spaces, and here in Ithaca we have so many of those the diversity in Stewart Park is incredible. Um, The Science Center folks are going to be working in the little park right out back behind the Science Center. Um, The Cayuga Nature Center staff is going to be out at Cayuga Nature Center. Um, So this would be the best day in the world, if you've never done this before, to get your phone to go out, start observing, and join our community.
1: And what is your favorite uh, type of organism to look for or look at?
0: I guess I'm partial to plants. Um, I'm a geologist by training, and so I've sort of joined the um, ecology community accidentally, but I think that's great. And the more accidental ecologists that we have um, in, our, in our community, the better off we are. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a gardener, so I'm a plant person, um, but everything is just so beautiful and so important. So I just love being outside and, and making these observations.
1: So how can people find out more about the City Nature Challenge taking place in Ithaca from April 30th to May 3rd?
0: Well, there are several websites that can help inform you. Um, CityNatureChallenge.org is the main site for the global um, event. And then the iNaturalist platform, which is iNaturalist, that's the letter I, Naturalist, all one word.org. Um, That will get you started on iNaturalist. And then our event is located within that iNaturalist website. Then the PRI homepage, priweb.org, also will have information about the the BioBlitz.
1: So people can find out if they are within the area um, that the BioBlitz is going to be taking place in?
0: Yes. If you're on the Ithaca City Nature Challenge 2021 Ithaca, New York website, you'll see a map at the bottom and you'll see the big square that encompasses the five eastern finger lakes and you'll be able to tell if you're in that square or not.
1: Is there anything else that you would like people to know about the City Nature Challenge? Just to reiterate, you don't need to
0: be a specialist, you don't need to have any training, you just need a phone or a camera and online access, and you need to be willing to go outside and look around, and we really want everybody to join us.
1: Okay, so Dr. Alexandra Moore, Senior Education Associate at the Paleontological Research Institution, also known as PRI, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you so much, Esther. I'm Esther Rikusen, and you've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. I produced today's show and the interview of Dr. Alexandra Moore. Dr. Anna Levina produced today's interview of Kate Rall, organizer of the museum exhibit, Daring to Dig. Our theme music is from Joe Lewis, and other music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find all of our archive shows and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. And don't forget to send us a tweet at FLX Science Radio. Tune in for our next show on Tuesday, April 13th. Science
2: out.